This is going to be good, isn't it? I absolutely loved it. You know, the Iliad and the Odyssey would, if published today, be classified as fantasy. <laughs> I'm reading it and reading it, and mm. I'm going, oh, no. So I thought I really have to hook the reader. The book actually put a hex on me. Hi, it's Kate Evans here from ABC Radio National's The Bookshelf. Delighted to be here with another podcast extra interview for you, this time with the dynamic Maria Lewis. She's a screenwriter, novelist, pop culture commentator and podcaster herself. She writes urban fantasy where you might just find yourself at a nightclub run by werewolves, but there's more to it than that. She's also a generous reader of other writers' work. So, Maria, how would you define fantasy as a genre, or I guess particularly the type of fantasy that you write? Fantasy as a genre is basically anything that is hyper-real. I mean, it's a very broad term. If you just Google fantasy as a genre, you'll be inundated with uh, many, many, many Pinterest collages of, you know, Venn diagrams with circles overlapping and what is speculative fiction, which is often a, it's like a fancy term for what fantasy is. It's, you know, fiction that like has fantastical elements to it, I guess, which seems pretty self-explanatory. But the genre that I write in or subgenre, if you will, uh, is called urban fantasy. And again, that's a term that's very industry-based. It's not something that necessarily readers would identify with as they do with something like young adult or science fiction. But urban fantasy, paranormal fantasy, that basically means anything that has a fantastical element that is set within a world that we recognize today. So if you were using Harry Potter, for example, a widely read text, uh, you know, that in a way is urban fantasy because it has Hogwarts and magic and wizards and witches, which are fantastical elements, but it also has a real world setting with London and Scotland and the real life places that are entrenched in the story, if that makes sense. One of the things that I enjoy about your books, though, is the way that it's a very gritty urban reality. We've got nightclubs and people going out and this very familiar world with a bit of, you know, sex and music and attitude as well. So what do you like about that type of urban fantasy? Urban fantasy that has a bit of grit to it, oftentimes I feel like can be um, very stereotyped as masculine, you know. The work of men gets called gritty or gets called edgy, whereas women oftentimes our stuff sort of gets taken less seriously or um, it, it gets undermined by some of the descriptors. But a lot of my work has gritty elements to it. It has supernatural creatures, uh, predominantly women, so banshees, werewolves, um, witches, ghosts, you name it, mermen, all different types of monsters um, and creatures that are representations for different types of women that I want to tell stories about in the world. So that includes women who are, say, like late teens, early 20s, 30s, 40s, women who are gay, women who are biracial, women who are disabled, all different types of women and all different facets of the female experience. That's kind of my bag. And I use settings that people recognize with twists, I guess you could say. There are nightclubs set in Berlin that are, you know, run by werewolves who <laughs> kind of like set up their own uh, multi-ethnic, multinational pack. And 
There are uh, secret alchemist bars where you need to know passwords to be able to get in. There are places that are run by wombat shapeshifters in Australia. (laughs) There's all sorts of things. But I I love that idea of looking at things that you see every day or looking at things that you think you know and doing a little bit of a twist on that, doing a little bit of a remix on that. I can pretty much find anything interesting no matter what it is. I can find some angle or some way that hooks me in. And I love being in a physical place and being inspired by that place. That's oftentimes why my books are set in locations like Dundee in Scotland or, you know, Berlin in Germany, uh, Newtown in Sydney. The books hop to all different locations, Boss Castle in Cornwall, (laughs) like very specific places, but places that people feel like they know, but I feel personally like I can I can show them something they haven't seen before, show them an element that they haven't seen before. I mean, anyone who's walked the streets of Berlin and and how cool that city is and how multicultural and how modern and how historical, like although those things seem contradictory, but they're all sort of meshed into one in a city like that. And the same way in Sydney and The Wailing Woman, um, that becomes a whole different type of city for a lot of people, like taking things that exist, <laughs> that exist like St. James Station in Sydney and subverting it and twisting it and taking people a little bit deeper. So it's using real life historical elements and taking it in a different direction. That's one of my favorite things to do as somebody who writes within the genre of urban fantasy, but it's also something that I love to read as somebody who really enjoys consuming urban fantasy from different authors. So tell us about some of those different authors. If people like the sound of this and they want to go to a nightclub with werewolves or know that they're going to encounter diverse characters, sexuality, what else might they read? Well, I guess one of the most mainstream examples of what I feel is really excellent urban fantasy is anything by Charlene Harris. So, of course, her series, the Sookie Stackhouse series, which got adapted into television, the HBO series True Blood, which was really seminal in terms of gore and sexuality and adult themes being developed and queer themes being developed and played for a mainstream audience. Her books are really, really incredible and really interesting. And many of them are sort of set in America's deep south and use supernatural creatures as a way to talk about racism and systematic prejudice, which is really interesting. And Also, one of the things I love so much about urban fantasy is that they have serious themes and there's serious things that they're looking at, but it's done so in a really entertaining way. You know, the themes are never at the expense of the story and the story is never at the expense of the theme. And I think that's why I love authors like Charlene Harris. Rochelle Mead is really great. She has a young adult series called Vampire Academy, which is very popular. But um, I think many of her adult books are the Succubus Blue series and There's more of like a sword and sorcery series that's really great. Carrie Arthur um, is kind of iconic in the genre. You know, she was one of the first people to really kick down the door for very sexy, very gritty urban fantasy and urban fantasy that was set in Australia as well, a futuristic dystopian version of Australia, but that in and of itself was very groundbreaking. Uh, Tamora Pierce, she's kind of, she's like the mother (laughs) of the genre, I guess. Um, her worlds are so rich and Kelly Armstrong. I mean, there's so many in comic books as well. I think there are incredible urban fantasy stories. In fact, some of the best, something like 
Greg Rucker and Nicholas Scott's Black Magic is a really great example of all the possibilities you can realize in urban fantasy as a subgenre. It's uh, it's basically a police procedural with witchy magical elements, which is truly everything I've ever wanted in a text, to be honest. And we were just talking about Sarah J. Maas, a, um, a, a recent example of a very successful writer of urban fantasy. Tell us about her. Well, Sarah J. Maas is probably better known for um, high concept fantasy stuff. So her fantasy series set in alternate worlds, worlds that people haven't necessarily seen before, wouldn't necessarily recognize. You know, it's not New York City with a twist, like something like the Mortal Instruments. It's not necessarily dystopian London, like something like Mortal Engines. I'm trying to think of examples of things that don't have mortal in the title, <laughs> but there you go. And, um, you know, she's been probably one of the most popular authors within that sort of high concept fantasy uh, world for the past few years. It's very, sword and sorcery is a term that often gets used. And a lot of her works do have both swords and sorcery in one form or another. If we think big picture fantasy in however you want to imagine that, what would be your sort of origin texts? I guess the comic book origin story, if we're, if we're going, you know, Dark Knight Year One or Batman Year One, if you will, for all the comic book fans out there, are things like Matilda, which I know that seems very weird to, to cite as an example, but that idea, that core theme of a girl who is special, a girl who was other, I think is something that runs through it. Yeah, okay, it's a trope of urban fantasy. It's a trope of fantasy. The one, this idea of a Neo or a Harry Potter or a Buffy Summers, that chosen being who is special and unlike all the others, that in and of itself is a bit of a stereotype. But when it's done well, I think it can be eternally rewarding and eternally engaging. So things like that, but also comic books were a big entry point for me, particularly because you got to see women at the forefront of their own stories. You got to see books where female characters like, you know, Birds of Prey, for example, the run in the late 90s, early 2000s, on the main cover, you have three different types of women, you know, a woman in a wheelchair who's like the leader of their gang in Barbara Gordon Oracle. You have Huntress, you have Black Mary, you have an Asian Batgirl during this era. It was showing me examples of stories where the kind of women that I wanted to see represented were not just supporting characters or little straws that you had to clutch at, but women who were the key drivers of narrative. And the 90s in particular were a really great time in the pop culture sphere as a whole for fantasy across all different realms and specifically television because you have something like The X-Files, which is a little bit of a amalgamation of, you know, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, but you also have Xena, you have Buffy, you have so many great texts like that and so many great characters like that and so many great women really coming to the fore and sort of defining what the genre would be in novels for the next sort of like 10, 15 years. I mean, those archetype characters and subversions of them end up bleeding into the kind of fantasy books that we get for the next, you know, few decades, which is really exciting because then you start to get really fun twists on things that you expect. You know, then people start to subvert your expectations. You get stuff like Gale Carriage's Changeless series, right, which is essentially a steampunk 
um, <laughs> a steampunk werewolf demon story, you get something like Ellison Goodman's Lady Helen series, which is like Buffy meets Pride and Prejudice. You start to get these really fun twists on genres that have been, you know, quite in quite conventional lanes up until that point. And I think for anybody who writes within that realm, but also reads within it, that can be really exciting too. Because it can be so playful and so imaginative. I mean, there is no limit in a sense, or is there? I mean, are there conventions of the genre that constrain it or are there no limits? I think traditionally heterosexuality was a big convention of the genre. You know, characters were straight. They were in cis relationships and were cis characters and cis characters, whereas now that is that has very much gone out the window as the types of authors and creators who are writing these stories become more diverse as well. And I think that's really important. Obviously, you know, the white hero, the white heroine was also something that was very prevalent in the early days of the genre, but is something that is, again, largely being tossed out the window as things start to get more diverse behind the scenes. It's not just that we're getting diverse characters now, we're getting diverse representation in boardrooms, in publishing houses, in editing worlds, and marketing worlds. Granted, there needs to be a lot more of it, but that is starting to happen. And because of that, we're starting to see things shift, things that might have been stereotypical once in a while. You know, a love triangle, for instance, is a very popular sort of trope um, between usually uh, a straight white woman and two straight white men that is something that we're not necessarily seeing in the same way anymore. We're starting to see really interesting spins on things, really enduring themes, themes that are reflecting where we are right now as opposed to where we are 20 years ago or 30 years ago when somebody like Tamora Pierce really had to punch through an industry that was largely dominated by men. Um, or someone like Patricia Briggs, for example, her Mercy Thompson series has been really groundbreaking for a lot of people. It's a character who's a biracial Native American woman. Uh, and that series has been going ongoing now for nearly 13, 12 or 13 books, I believe. And when she came through around the same time as, you know, Charlene Harris, Michelle Mead, Carrie Arthur, Kelly Armstrong, there were women working in the space, but they didn't necessarily get the same shelf attention and shelf love that male authors who would write these types of genres would necessarily get. And I think that's changing in a big way, not because their content is good, their content has always been good, but because people are actively working to try and shine a light on authors and creators who don't necessarily fit the stereotype of, you know, your J.R. Tolkien's, uh, your C.S. Lewis, your Neil Gaiman's, your Benaronovich's, you know, pick any other any other male name from that world, basically. And there's also a whole subset from Tolkien onwards that draws on folk stories and so on, which had been based on either Anglo-Celtic or Norse mythology. And now you've got somebody like Marlon James or Nedia Corafor using African stories and playing with them as a basis for their fantasy. So what's happening there? Well, there's so many examples of what people would consider like traditional myths and legends, right? And those originally, or let's say like in the last 20 to 30 years being, uh, you know, 
how many versions of Arthurian myths and legends did we see? How many versions of Greek and Roman classical stories did we see um, switched up to be put in a modern setting or characters that are being gender bent or vice versa? But that is largely because the people greenlighting those, I'm not saying those stories weren't good. A lot of those stories are really incredible and have long lasting legacies. But a big part of the reason we saw so many of those is the people greenlighting those projects, the editors, the managing editors, the publishers, the publishing houses saw themselves represented in those backgrounds and recognized those stories. And now we're getting to this point where you have authors like Daniel Jose Older coming through or Julia Kawago with Shadow of the Fox. We're starting to expand outside of this sort of Western ideal that there is only five or six same stories that can be told and retold. And those authors have massive followings, massive international followings, because there is a really hungry market out there who are thirsty to read stories from not just backgrounds that represent their own or legends and myths and themes that are familiar to them, but people who have never been exposed to that stuff as well, people who want to read something new and want to read something different. I think urban fantasy and just fantasy readers in general are really hospitable to new ideas. They really want to be taken to new places. They really want to consume content that they feel is fresh. And I'm not saying that means it doesn't have to have tropes or stereotypes of the genre. Of course it does. I think cliches can be really powerful and useful for a reason, but at the same time, it's what you do with those with those recognizable elements. And there's so many authors at the moment doing really exciting things with those. Maria, a lot of people resist fantasy, or rather people who've never read it have all sorts of presumptions about it. So if you meet somebody who says, look, I never read this, do you have a conversion text? What do you suggest to them? You know what? Converting people to fantasy is like doing a really intricate psychic reading. <laughs> like I would find out, okay, what kind of books do you read? And if they say they're more of a true crime person or they love crime fiction or they love romance or they love historical fiction, that's the beauty of fantasy is that you can, depending on what their preference is, depending on the thing that they love, you can find something for them. You can point them in the direction of something that is going to cater to their crime interests. So for instance, like Charlene Harris, for instance, most of her books have crime elements to them. There's a central mystery that's being unraveled or like it's a bit of a detective story. And yes, okay, there might be shifters or vampires or angels or whatever. You choose your poison involved in there, but that's part of it as well. Um, somebody like Tamora Pierce, you know, that's a more traditional idea of like knights, but it's a female knight. It's a story that has been flipped. The gender has been subverted and it challenges a lot of those themes about what it means to be, quote unquote, a woman, a girl uh, in a world that's largely dominated by men. You know, if somebody is is big into police procedurals, I'd probably flick them black magic. If somebody is looking for something that's a little bit, has more of a sci-fi bent, I'd probably, you know, steer them towards Terra Nullius by um, Claire J. Coleman. Like there's so many different elements that no matter what somebody is interested in, you can pretty much find something for them. Fantasy as a genre is a little bit, and this is going to sound very Forrest Gumpy, 
but it's a little bit like a box of chocolates. And that depending on what somebody's flavor is, depending on what they're after, you can find something for them. I mean, there's a book called, uh, and you might need to bleep this out, The Girl Who Could Move Shit With Her Mind by Jackson Ford that is like X-Men meets Alias. You know, it's fantasy, but it's very grounded within the real world setting of Los Angeles. So you can find something for everyone. And I think that is a big part of what I love about fantasy so much. If I'm wanting something that is whimsical and is going to sweep me away and like a high high stakes romance, but also have monsters, I know what I'm going after. And if I want something that's a bit more like stab, stab, punch, punch, I know who I'm going for that as well. Um, And that's also the beauty of social media, things like Twitter and Goodreads and Instagram and Bookstagram and Reddit subreddits, all of that, depending on what your preference is. Someone out there has that information for you and they're just dying to convert you into whatever their fandom is. Because I reckon if somebody says they're really into political writing, for example, I'd steer them towards China Mieville. Yeah, that's a really good example. But also The Rook by Daniel O'Malley is a really great, and it was made into a television series that um, has just got the one season, but The Rook by Daniel O'Malley, who's an Australian author, he has another book in that series called Stiletto, and there's a third one coming out soon. That is a series that is set within the constructs of a chessboard, if that makes sense. (laughs) Like the main character is somebody who is a rook and she's a specific type of supernatural being. And it's set in modern day London and everything is run by the queen. And then there are pawns and there are knights and all that kind of stuff. It's a very incredible, rich text for political material, but also really clever, like little commentaries on the world of working in public service, which is where um, the author Dan O'Malley's background comes from. So you can truly find anything. If someone's like, I really enjoy politics or I really enjoy something like the thick of it, (laughs) but with monsters, you can be like, brilliant. I know the book for you. Here's 10. (laughs) (laughs) And for me, this is a genre where I want recommendations. That's how I've found the best new stuff is somebody saying, oh, you really must read Naomi Novik or I'm halfway through Tamsin Muir's Gideon the Ninth because somebody told me about it just last week. Yeah, and the thing about fantasy as a genre is it's one that just quietly chugs along. You know, there are perceptions, I guess, that different genres have different trends, different upticks. We're sort of on the tail end, I guess, of the young adult boom. Like people consider that to be something that was at its apex around like the mid-noughts and sort of towards getting towards 2010, right? That's when young adult uh, people perceive that to be at its peak and it's kind of tailed off a little bit. But different genres have moments of popularity or resurgence. True crime is probably maybe the dominant genre right now, although I'd argue true crime has always been something that people have been obsessed with, whether that's through Penny Dreadfuls or like tabloid Jack the Ripper stories. But fantasy has just quietly chugged along forever. It might necessarily be the genre that is always at the forefront of people's minds, but every publisher has not just like one fantasy wing, but usually a few. They have a few different fantasy imprints, um, places like Orbit or Goliance or, you know, whatever, places that skewer towards one type of fantasy over another. And it just kind of keeps the publishing industry chugging along. I think fantasy and romance are probably 
two of the most consistently successful genres, but oftentimes don't necessarily got a get a lot of heat directed on them. And and I've often thought, oh, maybe is that because fantasy has a lot of female readers and so does romance, but also a lot of female authors. But a lot of female authors within the fantasy genre will write under an acronym or like a gender neutral acronym. So it's not easily identifiable on the cover that they're a woman because there are all these stats about men being uh, 62% less likely to pick up a fantasy novel if it's clearly stated on the cover that the author is a woman. I think that's changing now, but it's it's something that publishers definitely think about when they're marketing books. And so because of that, there is just an endless, 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 endless catalog of fantasy novels for people to dive into. And that is when you tap into your friend who you know is a bit of a secret nerd or <laughs> loves a bit of fantasy, whether that's in comic books or television or novels or anything and you ask them what's your recommendation here are the things that I love can you find me a fantastical version of that and they will probably give you 25 different options cli-fi is one for instance that's really sort of having a wee moment right now obviously because we're going through a climate crisis and have been for you know nearly 35 years but climate fiction is something that um a lot of people are really digging into things like drown town and so many different types of texts that fit within that subgenre, sub subgenre, I should say. <laughs> Maria Lewis, what have you read recently that you've just loved? I've been doing a lot of comfort reading. <laughs> I'll be honest. I think there's something about pandemic times that make you want to reread something where you're not necessarily going to have anxiety around what's happening with the plot or like is your favorite character about to kill, be killed off, which is often sometimes something I get a lot of angry letters about from people um, when I kill off characters in my books. But I was rereading Alana, The First Adventure um, by Tamora Pierce, which is considered a really pivotal fantasy novel in the genre. Um, I've been trying to switch up out of fantasy as well. Uh, I read Say Nothing, which is an incredible book about the IRA and the troubles through the 70s to present day basically it's a non-fiction book obviously and I've been reading a lot of romance novels there's uh, some really great works out there at the moment by women of color who are really subverting what people's stereotypes are about the genre people like Alexa Martin and her playbook series Alicia Ray with the right swipe I mean there are just so many great texts out there at the moment, I've been trying to dip into a little bit of everything, genres that I wouldn't necessarily, I don't read a whole lot of nonfiction because I work in the nonfiction space a lot um, in terms of like documentaries and journalism stuff. So I don't tend to read as much nonfiction as I probably should or would like to. So I've been trying to almost pick up a different genre novel every few days. <laughs> that's, been, that's been the aim, like switch genres. We're going true crime, Candace Fox. For a bit of fun crime fiction, we're trying to switch up to some fantasy with Tamora Pierce, a little bit of nonfiction, a little bit of romance. I just want to, I just want to keep it interesting. I think I need you for my personal bibliotherapist. I would love that, honestly. Whenever I'm on a convention, like at a pop culture convention, or if I'm on a writers' festival or something, and you're on a panel or doing a talk, and somebody inevitably asks the question either A, what are you reading, or B, what do you recommend? And it's one of my favourite subjects because I'm a very earnest person. Like I think being earnest about stuff is the coolest 
thing you can do, like being sincere about the things that you love. And I don't like to waste a whole lot of time and energy on things that I don't like or things that underwhelmed or disappointed me, especially when there's so much negativity out there in the world anyway. I love to talk about books and pop culture and content that really like delights me, like illuminates my soul, if you will, which sounds a bit wanky, but that's basically <laughs> why I engage in so much pop culture. And so whenever anybody asks for a recommendation or what I've been reading lately, it's like, oh, yes, finally, an opportunity to talk about, you know, 52 things that I love and all the reasons why. <laughs> well, that's what we live for here on the bookshelf. Maria Lewis, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about one of my favourite subjects. <laughs> author, screenwriter and journalist Maria Lewis, whose novels include Who's Afraid and Who's Afraid Too and The Witch Who Courted Death. Her recommendations are so enthusiastic and well-argued. Well, since that conversation, I've read three of the books she talked about. And if you want to do that too, you can find a list of all the books mentioned at the bookshelf page at ABC Radio National. I'm Kate Evans. Join me next time for more books. Bye.